again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Well, as the world eagerly awaits Peter Jackson's documentary about the Beatles' last public performance, we're going to examine a fascinating story about performances near the beginning of their career with our guest, Jim Birkenstadt, author of The Beatle Who Vanished. In the spring and summer of 1964, the Beatles ruled pop music like no one before or since. In April, they held the top five spots on the Billboard Hot 100, with another seven singles also on the list. In late May, even the re-release of their debut single from 1962, Love Me Do, had gone to number one. They'd conquered Great Britain and America. Now they're about to take on the world with a month-long tour of Europe, Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. The tour is set to start June 4th. But manager Brian Epstein does not let them relax on the 3rd, scheduling a photo shoot for the Saturday evening post in the morning and recording sessions in the afternoon and evening. But they never get to the EMI studios because drummer Ringo Starr collapses during the photo shoot and is whisked away to hospital with a diagnosis of tonsillitis and pharyngitis. Soon, Beatles producer George Martin is calling a London drummer named Jimmy Nickel to invite him to an audition that afternoon. He passes the audition, and from June 4th to June 13th, Jimmy Nickel is a Beatle. It was, he later said, the best thing to happen to me, the worst thing to happen to me. The strange saga of Jimmy Nickel, why he was the one who got the call, what those 10 days were like, and how they affected the rest of his life, is the business that occupies Jim Birkenstadt in this definitive account of one of the great and mysterious footnotes in modern pop. No one is more qualified to investigate and recount the story of Jimmy Nickel than Jim Birkenstadt. Not only is he the rock and roll detective, specializing in uncovering the lost histories and mysteries of pop music, he's also an international authority on the Beatles and has been accredited consultant on several projects by the Fab Four and the estate of George Harrison. He has co-authored or edited four other books, three on the Beatles and one on the band Nirvana. His new book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, is coming in March from Genius Book Publishing. He lives on the north side with his wife, Holly Kramer Birkenstadt. It's a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, my friend, Jim Birkenstadt. Hello, Stu. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. I always enjoy talking with you, whether it's on your show or when we run into each other at rock concerts. Or when we do little things for WORT, as, as we did right. last year. Yeah, we did that uh, children's uh, museum project. Yeah. Looking back on his Beatle experience, I'll say Jimmy Nickel sort of paraphrases Charles Dickens. It was the best thing to happen to me, the worst thing to happen to me. What did he mean by that? Well, Jimmy's experience was a real double-edged sword, but he didn't know it going into to this. To him, he was a London drummer who was well-respected amongst musicians, fellow musicians, both in the studio and uh, performing live. He had played in rock bands. He had played in uh, big bands and all around, uh, traveled all around uh, the UK on tour and was very well-respected now as a drummer in 1964 in the, in the studios. So, his goal was just to move up the ladder. And when this phone call came from George Martin asking him to come to EMI Studios, 
he wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be at first. And then he, of course, found out that he was uh, trying out or rehearsing, depending on who you ask, to uh, replace Ringo Starr and the Beatles. And so, of course, that would be a huge advancement in his career. And so I think that he went on tour believing that, you know, the sky's the limit. I'm now with the, the greatest band in the world, the most popular band. I'm going to be in all the newspapers. I'll be at all the press conferences, etc. So I think the whole experience seemed to be perfect for his career trajectory. However, the story is sort of fascinating and mysterious because if you want to understand the meteoric rise that he went through in this pop stardom and then the subsequent crash landing when he's sent home and he's not made a permanent drummer with the Beatles, it becomes a double-edged sword. And I think that's what explains his quote that you mentioned earlier, uh, because obviously there was some, in his mind anyway, some possibility that he might permanently replace Ringo. And if people recall, Ringo had only just replaced Pete Best two years earlier. Now Ringo had been with the Beatles two years on and Ringo fell ill. But I don't think Jimmy understood that Ringo had become like a brother. They were all like four brothers, the Beatles. So they weren't going to replace Ringo, even if Jimmy Nickel was the greatest drummer of all time. And there's no way that you could reasonably expect someone in two weeks to suddenly befriend a band, play with them, and then be asked to join, unless they were missing a drummer altogether. And they weren't missing Ringo. He was just ill for a couple of weeks. So I think once that reality hit, some reality hit him in the face when he was sent back home two weeks later, uh, you know, to London. You say even if he had been the greatest drummer in the world, arguably he was a better drummer than, than Ringo. I mean, Duke Ellington offered him a gig in, in his orchestra. Right. He, had, right. he, he could play every kind of music. So just yeah. on, on skill alone, he was a better drummer, but Ringo was a better Beatle. Yes, exactly. He seems to have been terribly conflicted by the experience. He certainly exploited his connection in trying to advance his music career, but he right. never wrote that book in 1964-65 that probably could have made him some good money. I think that's interesting, yes. I mean, he went through his post-Beatles career. Sometimes he would use the cachet of having been with the Beatles to advance himself, and other times, uh, maybe more so in private, he would berate Brian Epstein or say that he had been blacklisted by Brian Epstein and that the experience was not very good. Uh, he sort of used it both ways whenever it, you know, fit his needs. So was, he was conflicted. How serious a problem did Brian Epstein face on June 3rd, 1964, when Ringo collapses and is taken to hospital? Well, back then it was a very serious problem. I went through the archives in Australia of just the promoter and his his correspondences with Brian Epstein back and forth to just set up three dates in Australia. And what I found was there was a voluminous amount of records because back then it was too expensive to do um, long distance phone calling. There was no Zoom, there was no internet, there was no email, there was no texting. 
it all had to be done by slow boat letters flying back and forth between uh, London and Australia. So number one, it took Brian Epstein about nine months to set up the entire world tour and all of the details. Some of those details, of course, included not just the Beatles, but all the, the setting up of support bands in each city. Then there was uh, coordination with EMI on what, what single, what, what Beatles record are you going to have in the store when they get to this country, to that country. Uh, so you had international marketing going on with that, as well as all the Beatles uh, wigs and lunch boxes and all that sort of merchandising going on. And most significantly, back then, there was no uh, form of insurance for uh, promoters to protect them in cases of cancellation due to illness, let's say. And lawyers hadn't written into their contracts back then for these concerts any, any sort of consequence for someone couldn't make it, you know, after they've been given an advance and such. So there would have been a lot of litigation, uh, breaches of contract against the Beatles, and also just the publicity alone of canceling the tour would have very much harmed a band. And back in those days, whether you were the Beatles or whether you were Herman's Hermits, if you didn't show up when the show must go on, that the publicity alone could cause you to just break up and, and you'd be gone. Because back then, bands had a very short shelf life. The Beatles sort of broke that mold for rock and roll and showed that they could continue on. And now, of course, the Rolling Stones have been going on for decades. But at that time, pop stars weren't expected to last in the public eye for more than a couple of years. So if you cancel the world tour, you may might as well uh, go back to the factories. But apparently not all the Beatles immediately recognized how necessary it was to find a replacement for Ringo and continue the tour. That's right. In fact, George Harrison was adamantly against having Jimmy Nickel come in and substitute for Ringo. His comment was, if Ringo's not in the band, then we're not the Beatles. So we can't go out as the Beatles with Jimmy Nickel or any other substitute. And it actually took, you know, I think John and Paul understood the business implications a little faster than George did. George was really just speaking from the heart and Epstein and Paul and uh, John put a lot of pressure on him and said, here's why the show has to go on, why we have to do this. And it's very interesting because there's maybe, a, I think you could find this on YouTube. There's about a 30 or 40 second clip of Jimmy behind the drums at EMI Studios and the Beatles are surrounding him. And you'll see George has a pretty glum look on his face like, oh, I have to go through with this ridiculous PR. And at one point, George balls up his fist and pretends to punch Jimmy in the face. And I think that that was his sort of message to Ringo in the hospital, who would later see this on the nightly news, that at least George didn't approve of uh, the substitution idea. And there's a really sad coda to that, where a few years later, George comes to see Jimmy's band. I think it's the, the sound of Jimmy Nickel. And he sends up a drink as a goodwill gesture. And Jimmy rejects it. Right. Right. Very bizarre. I mean, uh, Paul McCartney 
uh, also reached out an olive branch to him, which was some work, which he did accept with uh, Peter and Gordon. But I think he probably knew that George wasn't uh, all on board. And, and you know, also the, the, there was that issue of the double-edged sword, like, well, why didn't you vote for me to stay in the band? You're just sending me a drink, you know? So who knows what was going on in his head that night, but he, he did reject a drink offer from George who had come to see him. Jimmy Nickel was born in August 1939, which makes him older than all the Beatles. He right. was he was gigging regularly and then in a, in a successful band that was featured in a motion picture. And he even toured Italy two years before the Beatles made it to Hamburg or even called themselves the Beatles. He was on the scene in a, in a bigger way before they were. Talk a bit about the London music scene in the late 50s, the importance of Larry Parnas and Jimmy's time with Colin Hicks and his cabin boys. Well, so it was interesting because what we're really talking about is the first generation of rock and roll in England. And uh, a lot of it started at these little coffee clubs in the later 50s. And the most famous being the Two Eyes Coffee Club, which in the basement had a small stage area. And that's where a lot of people got their start. A lot of little bands got their start uh, that would become more famous and get to tour in these package tours that Larry Parnes put together, who was who could probably be con- called the first, uh, certainly the first rock and roll manager of uh, England. And it was important because it gave, Jimmy Nickel moved to uh, London and started working as a drum repairer at a music store. And he would hear about these gigs at the Flamingo or the Two Eyes, these other little, little coffee clubs. And so he thought, well, hey, I've been, I've drummed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to go over there when I hear about these gigs and maybe I can sit in. And I'm also getting to know the other drummers because I'm repairing their drums or tuning their drums. So he started going there and uh, pretty soon he would get to, you know, some guy might be drunk or, or maybe tired or sick or whatever. And Jimmy would get to fill in. And that led to him eventually being selected by Colin Hicks, who was putting a band together first to uh, do a, a part in a movie where they performed. And he was in that band and, he performed really well. There is a, um, I have a clip of him doing an amazing drum solo with the band and it's, it's on the book website, thebeetlewhovanished.com. And you can see that already he was just this amazing performer and you could see that he loved to solo. Uh, he loved to show showboat a little bit, but that he was on the beat. He really knew what he was doing. That movie was seen by a lot of people in Italy and they were fascinated by this band, which really wasn't a popular band in England at the time. They had toured around, but they just they just didn't catch on in England. But then they got this gig to tour Italy. So at a very, very young age, Jimmy was off on a world tour to um, go to Italy and travel around. And, and he not only learned what that life was like, but also they got to record as a band in Italy, record some singles. So he got a sense of what it was like to be a drummer in in the studio early on. 
So I think it was a good experience. I actually saw Colin Hicks's older brother, Tommy Steele, perform half a sixpence on Broadway. So you oh, know, when wow. I was probably 12 or 13 or something. Yeah. And I think if I recall, I think he was even in some Disney movies or something. We're talking with Jim Birkenstadt. The book is The Beetle Who Vanished. Jimmy Nickel even... He even recorded an album of Beatles covers. As, as I mentioned, Duke Ellington later offers him a job in his orchestra. Based on his experience, his skill, even his size and his look, was mm-hmm. there anyone on the English scene more qualified than Jimmy Nickel to fill in for Ringo? Well, there were other drummers around at the time who I think were um, excellent drummers. Some were session drummers, some were live drummers. But um, he did actually, I mean, he did squeeze into Ringo Starr's suit, although he was a little huskier than Ringo. They, they fitted him the night before, and he was already starting to grow the Beatle haircut while he was playing in the band with Georgie Fame in the Blue Flames at the uh, Flamingo. So, I mean, he, he did have the right size and look, and I, it's interesting because of all the people I interviewed, uh, no one had brought that idea up, which is a very interesting point that you mentioned. The the look and style of Jimmy fit in beautifully with the Beatles to the point where I did interview a woman who was in the crowd of 300,000 in Melbourne and saw Jimmy Nickel and then also saw him uh, perform a show and she said we had no idea as fans that that wasn't Ringo up there, you know. So, so he did look the part, and you're right. You know, not every drummer would be the same size as Ringo, or have the approximately, or have the haircut. So um, that's an interesting point, you know, because other drummers would just, you know, look completely different. They could have been tall and skinny, or or whatever. They were just very fortunate because he had that experience of covering Beatles songs for a cover album in the studio. So he had to learn Ringo's parts on what turned out to be the same songs that the Beatles were playing when they went out on that first world tour. So the uh, rehearsal at EMI Studios was actually pretty brief. It was 15 or 20 minutes because they were amazed that Jimmy Nickel knew all of Ringo's parts already. And another drummer wouldn't necessarily have known them. And yet, despite all this, he was not, he did not get the first call. Why not? It's probably that Brian Epstein knew some other people and, and had come into contact with them and maybe had had experiences with them in Liverpool. And now they were in London. Uh, You know, unfortunately, Brian's not alive to tell us what was going through his mind at the time. But the first drummer, I think, said that he had um, his own. He had just started his own nightclub and he was doing very well and that he wasn't that confident that the Beatles were going to be anything special. (laughs) The second drummer was a a very well in demand session drummer. And he was concerned that Charlie the Fixer, the man who would schedule uh, people for their recording sessions, that Charlie would punish him if he were gone for two weeks on a tour. And when he came back, he wouldn't have any work. He'd be starving for two months. And what's interesting is 
session work paid three times more than factory work in London at the time. And you didn't have to work a full day. You might only work four hours and make three times more than the average worker in England. So it was a very lucrative uh, job. And I, I don't think that drummers necessarily wanted to walk away from it. But amazingly, Jimmy Nickel, you know, seized on that opportunity as the third person asked. He, all, he knew he knew the parts because he had done them before. And he maybe felt this is a bigger opportunity and, you know, I'll decide, you know, to maybe if I'm punished for two weeks, three weeks, when I get back by Charlie the Fixer, no big deal. As it turns out, I talked to Charlie the Fixer's uh, widow not long ago, and she said that they were very disappointed that Jimmy chose not to come back to do recording sessions after the Beatles because they wanted him on records because of having been with the Beatles. When the tour started, they didn't really know exactly how long Ringo would be out, did they? I mean, they didn't know if it was, if Jimmy, Jimmy didn't know, is this a one week gig? Is this two weeks? Is this the whole, is this the month long tour? It was all up in the air. It was all up in the air. And in fact, you get that sense from, you know, at least I did while researching, from listening to the press conferences, because they oftentimes the question they'd ask Jimmy uh, with the Beatles is, well, when's Ringo coming back? Which if you think about it, is sort of a rude question but, to Jimmy, but uh, they didn't know. And the other Beatles, sometimes the other Beatles would just throw out a day like, oh, next, next Friday. But they really didn't know it was up in the air. And I think nowadays someone would just have handed Ringo some penicillin and said, get back out there. Um, but to, back then, it was, it was serious. He had a fever and had to lay in bed. When Ringo collapsed, was Brian Epstein in the room to see it happen, or did he get a call from Neil? Was he at the photo session? I don't believe he was at the photo session because I talked to Neil Aspinall, and he said, uh, I was in charge of this event or whatever you want to call it, this, this photo shoot. And Ringo just collapsed into a ball on the floor. And he said, I, I recall physically carrying him out to a car and escorting him to the hospital. We, we didn't know at the time what had happened. or We knew that Ringo was always sort of frail as a child and had yeah. spent time in the hospital uh, as a young boy. Uh, so we didn't want to take any chances. And he said, I just picked him up and carried him away. So I don't think Brian was there, but I think Probably what happened is uh, either if there was someone assisting uh, Neil, perhaps Mal Evans, their, um, you know, protector and roadie, that he may have called Epstein to let him know what had just happened. And then Epstein had to go into gear to figure out what to do to save this tour because the next morning they were flying out onto the world tour for the first time. It was George Martin who actually made the call to Jimmy. Was it the Paul McCartney, Georgie fame connection that ultimately brought Jimmy to George Martin's attention? Yes. A lot of times online, it says that George Martin had worked with Jimmy Nickel or had watched him record, etc. And I interviewed George Martin uh, for the book while he of course was still alive. And he said, no, I did not know Jimmy. I had never 
I had heard of Jimmy, but I had not heard Jimmy play or record, and I had never worked with him. And so Paul knew of Jimmy Nickel because he was going to watch those Georgie fame shows live. And a lot of other rock stars would go there. That was sort of like the, they were like the hottest local band in London. So everybody wanted to go see them play. And um, I think also though, one other consideration is that Paul may have also suggested it to Brian Epstein because, and then Brian Epstein had been in a studio with Jimmy Nickel for one of his other artists in Epstein's stable. And I was able to actually track down uh, BBC footage of Epstein very close by to Jimmy Nickel in the studio for that actual session that took place about two months before Jimmy took over for the Beatles. So I think Epstein had heard him and seen him play and maybe not thought of him right away. See, this is why they call you the rock and roll detective, because you can track down stuff like that. And I have to commend to people your the website for this book. There's some great videos. I mean, to see Jimmy Nickel in that movie, to see some of those press conferences, it's, it's really some very entertaining stuff. McCartney seems like a real mensch throughout this narrative. He helps get Jimmy the gig. He helps him out in his post Beatles life without letting him know, as you say, he even gets him a temporary gig with his girlfriend's brother's band. Um, Is it possible that McCartney somehow knew that two years later, Jimmy would be the inspiration for a song on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band? Well, I don't think the inspiration hit him right away, but I, I first say that we should commend Paul because I believe that, Paul, maybe more than anyone else, but I think also John Lennon understood what it must be like, the pressure to suddenly come into the biggest band in the world and have to drive the rhythm bus in the back and and have to, you know, go through these mobs of women grabbing at your clothes and tearing your hair and the whole, they knew that that whole experience would be fairly, uh, traumatic in both a good and a bad way because they had already been through this. So I think Paul was very empathetic to that and always wanted to make sure that, that Jimmy felt comfortable during uh, an amazing, you know, two weeks of his life. And so he would occasionally say to Jimmy on tour, how's it going? And uh, Jimmy Nickel would say, it's getting better, Paul. It's getting better all the time. And so It is interesting that probably just stayed in Paul's head uh, as an interesting statement. And it was very nice of him to inquire. And then a couple of years later for Sergeant Pepper, uh, it must have just resurfaced. And then he wrote a song, you know, not about Jimmy Nickel, but he used that that phrase for the chorus and the title. And John's rejoinder couldn't get much worse. Right. (laughs) After let's just say very short rehearsal on June 3rd. They opened the tour the next night in Copenhagen. It is tough for a drummer when the girls are screaming so loud, you can't hear the bass or guitars. How did Jimmy Nickel do that first night? Well, he was nervous. He stated, and he was, you know, just trying to figure out how to stay on the beat. And then uh, you can there again, I found some video of that night. And you see that at some point, John, you know, who really was the founder of the band, senses that Jimmy is off the beat. 
And, you know, Ringo used to say, I used to have to watch their butts going up and down to know what the rhythm is. And so, but John actually turned around and played to Jimmy with his back to the crowd. And John was rhythm guitar. So he was showing him the two and the four beats, which is where the drumming needs to be. Uh, and showed it to him so that he could get Jimmy back on the beat. And then he turned back around to the crowd. So that was really some very intuitive work on John's behalf to help out the drummer on the first night. And did he settle down and for the rest of the tour really get it right? He kept getting better and better. Yeah. I mean, by the end, like there's, um, I can't recall if there's footage from Adelaide, but they did, I think they did like four shows in Adelaide and, he just, I've seen some photos of him and the, the Beatles turning and smiling and that sort of thing. And I, I've heard the bootleg and such. I think he just really, by the time they got to Australia, he had really caught on and they were all in sync as a band. But it seems he did like, as you noted, to show off a bit and would do those little, 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 yeah. jet, little, little big band finishes and not finish with the rest of the band. The rest of the band is bowing and, he's, bowing. Still, and he's still hitting it. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that was hilarious uh, because that was not the Beatles style or method. You know, Ringo would make the last crash or the last beat and he would also bow. But Jimmy was from us, you know, an earlier era. And that in, in big band terms, that was how they would end a song with the big flourish. But it is funny to see him bashing away to finish a song while the other band members are, are bowing. So how did the press treat the whole situation? Well, I think that the, the press was, you know, pretty nice to Jimmy. They were interested in knowing a little bit about his background. They were interested to know what it was like on the tour while he was on tour. And uh, they, towards the, maybe towards the Australian part, you know, it had now been a week or so or a week and a half. And they were inquiring of, uh, well, what will you do next? And so Jimmy had been contacted by uh, Pie Records where he had done a couple of singles with a group of other session players and they called themselves Jimmy Nickel and the Shub Dubs. So they asked if he would come back and they would give him a, like a three single deal and play in London. So that's something that he could talk about. Uh, but again, he was still sort of pining and hoping that maybe the Beatles would ask him to stay with the band. Yeah. We're talking with Jim Birkenstadt. The book is The Beatle Who Vanished. For Even for those of us who lived through it, it is hard to comprehend just what Beatlemania was like at this point. And you read your account of their reception in Australia, especially Adelaide, and it is just mind-boggling. It truly was a mania. It was crazy. I mean, 300,000, I think, is the number. And you see people hanging from tree limbs. I mean, really, I, I actually went to Australia because I needed to see what this street looked like. And it's really quite small and narrow. I mean, the streets there are not like here in Madison, for example, much, which are really much wider uh, in that in that sort of an area. And I couldn't believe how did these people even squeeze into this small amount of space and they're hanging out of windows, they're on rooftops, they're on 
light poles, you know, shimmying up light poles. But you just see this solid mass of people, almost like an, a little ocean. And you see it sort of moving in a sort of gently swaying back and forth. And it just goes on forever and ever as you look at it from the camera's point of view. And it, it was certainly amazing, the, the type of response. And I think that's really the biggest uh, response of Beatlemania the Beatles ever experienced. And just to see four guys whom they really can't even see on a balcony waving. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I have a little funny story. Uh, it's actually in the book, but the woman that I interviewed, um, now this was, I believe, in Melbourne. She had blonde hair and she went to a private Catholic school and she called herself in as sick on the day the Beatles arrived in Melbourne. And also Ringo came back that day. And so ultimately, uh, five Beatles were on the roof because you had Jimmy Nickel, Ringo Starr, and John Paul and George all waving. And she wanted to see them. So she actually ditched school and pretended to be her mom, calling herself in sick, went to this crowd of a million zillion people, all packed together now in front of the hotel in Melbourne. And there was a camera on the roof with the Beatles and it showed sort of a side view of the Beatles all waving and such, but then it pans down into the crowd and it starts to zoom in. And it seemed like every other girl in the crowd was a brunette, but here was this blonde and they zoomed right in on her. So that night on the news, the nuns at her school <laughs> saw that she was not sick and that she was right there in a close-up in the middle of this crowd, uh, you know, enjoying these terrible human beings with the long hair and, you know, ruining children's lives and all these things that they thought. And so when she got back to school the next day, she thought, oh, I got away with that. And they called a, a school assembly and pulled her up on the uh, stage and just shamed her forever for lying and for going to the Beatles. And she had to, you know, say, I won't, I won't, I don't believe in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> she, Poor girl. She should have said, sister Mary Elizabeth, what were you doing watching that terrible story on the news? Shame on, on you, sister Mary Elizabeth. She should have. You know, I asked her, I, I said, can I use that in the book? And she goes, sure. And then she went, wait a minute. Uh, I want you to change my name. And I said, why do you want me to change your name? She said, I'm still scared of those nuns. <laughs> Her knuckles never recovered. Right. So, so this is June 14th. Ringo, a recovered Ringo, meets up with a tour in Melbourne. Jimmy's star turn is over. How quickly did things change once Ringo returned? They all did a five-person press conference and before it started, they're all laughing, giggling and talking and such with each other. And I've seen video where Ringo and Jimmy are talking and Ringo's probably asking, how was it? What was it like? You know, and unfortunately, Jimmy started to take side questions during the press conference. And this is something that Brian Epstein, he had now come back. He wasn't there at all previously while Jimmy was on tour. So Jimmy was pretty much free to do whatever he wanted. He could go out at night. No one recognized him. He could come back. And now he started to see, oh, they're focusing on Ringo and such. 
and the other Beatles. So I'm off on the end of this table and some guy came over and started talking to him, but you know, he's got a live microphone. So his answers are speaking over the other Beatles who are taking these questions in an orderly fashion. So that really enraged Epstein. And when that press conference was over, he was enraged and, you know, because it just wasn't polite in his mind and it wasn't the way he liked things to run. It's interesting. He didn't yell at Derek Taylor, who was the press officer. He went right after Jimmy and said, that's it. You're finished. Go, go pack your bags and we'll take you to the airport tomorrow. And, and Jimmy had, Jimmy didn't like the way he was being treated, of course. And he also said, well, I've been invited to go back to Sydney. Uh, so I was thinking maybe you could fly me over to Sydney. And he goes, no, your ticket is made and, and you're going back to London. So they, they had this run in, which I think led Jimmy to later believe that he was blacklisted by Epstein. He did go to his room, but then when the Beatles were having their nightly party in their suite, Jimmy, um, went out on his own to go drinking. And when uh, Epstein found out about it, he sent Neil Aspinall and uh, Mal Evans down to look for him in the pubs. And they found him and said, you got to get back to your room. You're, you can't be out here all alone. And he said, well, I'm not a Beatle anymore. And Neil Aspinall said, you are a Beatle until we put you on that airplane. And so those directions clearly must have come from Epstein. And so they picked him up and took him back. And then the next day he left. The Beatles were all still asleep from their all night party. So he couldn't say goodbye and went to the airport. Epstein gave him his gold watch, thanked him and put him on the plane. So the whole the the reason that Epstein was so curt in dismissing him all goes back to Jimmy's behavior at that press conference, you think? Yes. Absolutely, because the reports prior to that, from me talking to um, some of the other uh, people that worked for Brian, like Tony Bramwell is one I, I think of, he said that along the way they were, that Epstein was getting good reports about Jimmy, was very pleased that, that the tour was going smoothly. They had sort of pawned him off as Ringo, because all the ads still had Ringo in them. And uh, Jimmy, of course, looked like Ringo with the suit and the hair in the back. And it's hard to see the drummer when they're way in the back anyway. So, I mean, it all had gone according to plan. And it, that was the, the really the one and only thing that upset him, him being Brian Epstein, when he got back was the mishap at the press conference, Jimmy talking back to him when they had this little private argument, which was witnessed by the drummer, of Sounds Incorporated, who I interviewed, so he could give me the the actual play by play, and then the fact that he, you know, snuck out of the hotel. That was something that he never allowed the other Beatles to sneak out of the hotel. Well, that's that's very sad that they that everything ended on that on that bad note. Yeah, it is. Do, do you know for certain exactly how much he got paid? No, I don't think anyone knows for sure. There, there's, I think that the general. Because uh, different numbers have been thrown out, but I think the general consensus is five thousand pounds, UK pounds. That's a pretty good gig. Yeah, uh, for you, two weeks back yeah. in nineteen sixty-four, money. You mentioned he takes him to the airport. There's a photo in the book which really should have won some awards of Jimmy sitting alone in the empty airport. 
waiting yeah. for his flight back home on his feet, a pair of gorgeous beetle boots on his face, a look of incomprehension about what had just happened and uncertainty about what was about to happen. Right. It's, it's the most pivotal, pivotal picture of him in his beetle career. And it's interesting because to me, it looks like he's been through a war and now he's just, he's going back home. And, you know, it's like the, it's like PTSD. How am I going to deal with my life now? And, you know, what just happened and what's about to happen. You can see all of that on his face. He's deep in thought and it's quite um, an emotional photograph. It's quite amazing. He's got that thousand yard stare. Yeah. How big a deal was Jimmy Nickel when he returned to London after these two weeks? Well, uh, he became a media darling uh, immediately. He got this record deal. He got to be on top of the pops. Uh, I think the same episode as the Rolling Stones were on. Um, and then besides going into the studio to record again with a record deal and, and every day it was in the news it was the fifth Beatle went to the studio, the fifth Beatle drove his new uh, Jaguar around town and, and got three speeding tickets. And so he was, you know, he was really being faded by the, the media. And then uh, at this point, like maybe a few weeks later, Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five took ill. And the Dave Clark Five had some sort of two or three week stint uh, at some holiday camp and so they needed someone to take over the top of the bill. And whoever the promoter was picked Jimmy Nickel and he got his shub dubs together. And they then got to play um, a very lucrative uh, gig in place of the Dave Clark Five band. And uh, there's even a funny press picture where Jimmy went to the hospital and Dave Clark's sitting in the hospital bed and they're, they have their arm around each other. It's just, you know, more publicity. And <clears throat> Jimmy Nickel loved all that. He was, he was buying expensive suits. He had bought uh, this Ferrari or XKE or something, Jaguar. And he was living it up. And um, I don't think his wife liked it much because there were still a lot of females that were interested in him. And one day, like a big bag of fan mail showed up at their home, all from girls in Australia. And he was looking through all this mail. And so that might've been the beginning of the end for their marriage, which did end in a divorce, I think maybe nine or 10 months later, but he was doing well. He, I mean, he had played to a lot of people, but over time, as you know, with the media, the attention on a single person, no matter how big they're doing or how well they're doing, it just starts to wane and then the media looks for someone else to talk about. So as the media sank for Jimmy Nickel, that resulted in smaller and smaller gigs. And unfortunately, he had promised some very big payments to his band members because he knew that he had to pay them well to keep them from going back to studio work. And that worked fine when they were playing these large audiences like in place of Dave Clark Five. But as the media shrank, uh, the coverage of Jimmy shrank, then so did the 
size of venues interested in him until they were just playing pubs and eventually uh, Jimmy went bankrupt. The fact that the Shub Dubs released a single the same time the same song was released by a band fronted by Van Morrison and featuring Jimmy Page, it should have been taken as an omen that the band was not destined. Yes, I think you're right. In fact, that's the one Jimmy Nickel record or 45 I've not been able to find. I've found just a, uh, a picture of a promo advanced copy that would say go to a radio station, but I've never seen an actual record. And I have a hunch now that because that's the only one that's ever surfaced and everything else he ever did surface that perhaps his record company discovered the Van Morrison version and said, we can't compete with that and just pulled the release. Explain what it is we're talking about. Okay, so Van Morrison and uh, with Jimmy Page on guitar recorded this song. I think it was Baby Please Don't Go, kind of yeah. a blues number. And at the same time, across town at, at his stu- at Pie Studios, Jimmy was recording the same song with the Shub Dubs. Well, first of all, Van Morrison has a pretty good voice. And Jimmy Page has a pretty good guitar sound and technique. The Shub Dubs were almost a, you know, should have been an an instrumental band, but they were a sort of a jazz blues fusion. And Jimmy Nickel was not the lead singer. They had a, a just some guy that was a lead singer, and he he wasn't charismatic. He wasn't famous, and so you had a you know kind of a guy that didn't have a lot of soul singing a blues number. And the Van Morrison song was backed with a little number called Gloria. Right. <laughs> So they could flip that record back and forth on the radio. Yeah. Uh, how, however weird Van has turned out to be, you're not going to compete with Gloria and no. maybe please don't go. <laughs> During the heyday of the Shub Dubs, they even played on a bill with the Beatles. Shouldn't yeah. that shouldn't that gig in Brighton have made Jimmy realize that Brian Epstein was not out to get him? Yes. To reasonable people such as you and me, I think he should have realized. That I mean, why would why would you get that benefit of a big large crowd and to be on the bill if you know if the manager was blacklisting you, you would not get that gig. You wouldn't get any gig as a result of his efforts. To to Brian Epstein, it was just, you know, he had forgotten about the argument they had. And he was just doing this as a as a nice thank you. And, and I don't think Jimmy got it or understood it. I don't mean to be flip, but when you look at the totality of Jimmy's career, his penchant for reclusivity, the way he Mm -hmm. ghosts people, some of the career choices he made. Did you ever wonder if he had some mental health issues? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I am not a mental health expert by any means, but I do think that he developed some mental health issues and that in Mexico, from what I heard from people who he worked with there and collaborated with, that he did start to do a lot of heavy drugs. And, you know, again, sometimes people with mental health issues turn to drugs to try to mask that problem and to feel better. So, you know, I can't say definitively, but 
um, I believe he did have or does have mental health issues and that that may have clouded his judgment. Uh, for example, later on when he married Julia via Senor. Via Senor. Yeah. When he married her, she reported that one day he was angry about being blacklisted again by by Brian Epstein. And this was, I think, after Brian Epstein had actually died. And he took the gold watch that Brian gave him and smashed it into a drawer and all the pieces came apart. So the only thing left was the, the gold backing with the engraved uh, part, which he kept, but the rest of the watch was destroyed. So yeah, he may have, he may have had some issues like that, that, you know, and maybe that's also why he didn't want to be asked about, you know, what was it like? for the rest of your life what was it like those two weeks when you were 25 and you were on top of the world maybe he just didn't like that reminder uh or those questions and so that has caused him to to vanish and and go off on his own and and try not to be found before we get to mexico and whether or not what his current status is he he takes up with a band or a band picks him up called the, the, the hit Swedish band, the Spotniks. What was the deal with these guys? Well, um, I compare them oftentimes to the ventures who we had in America who were a really cool rock and roll instrumental band. And when he had been touring with the Shub Dubs, they had a short tour over in Sweden where he got the opportunity uh, to meet the Spotniks just sort of accidentally. And he befriended a couple of them, but that was all it was, was just, you know, musicians getting together over a beer and, and be, becoming friends. And in 1965, Jimmy had been uh, over the Beatle issue for about a year. He had he had tried to form two bands. They were not, they ended up not being successful. He had, through Paul McCartney, he got this gig with Peter and Gordon. He was doing a little work with them. You know, even one of his former uh, bands had let him come in every now and then to fill in as a drummer. But he basically was bankrupt, divorced, really without any work, and was pretty down on his luck. And all of a sudden, at the same time, over in Sweden, the Spotniks, which had traveled all over the world and were very clever at marketing themselves, they would go to uh, they'd go to Paris and they would go into the studio and record an album, and they they'd call it the Spotniks in Paris. And next thing you know, everyone in France would buy that album, and then they'd go to another country and do the same sort of thing. So their drummer. Uh, got married and his wife didn't want him on, on tour all year long. And so that drummer uh, resigned from the Spotniks and these guys remembered Jimmy Nickel and thought, well, he's with the Beatles. That could help us, you know, that sort of press, you know, having a drummer that played with the Beatles. So they called him up and Jimmy accepted the offer because nothing else was going on. And he, he basically just walked out the door and didn't tell anybody in London, family or friends or fellow musicians where he was going. And it took me probably a year or two to figure out what had happened to him, but he had gone to uh, Gothenburg to join up with the Spotniks. 
And this is a great gig. It's the best thing he's had since the Beatles. They've got albums, they've got world tours, and they treated him really well. Yes. But then as, as you know, a full member, they're really respectful and they're promoting him and it all falls apart for him again. Well, after two years, it did. I think he was starting to grow bored with the music that they were doing. Like it, maybe there was a sameness for him. That's just my impression. And I, and I, I was thinking, I think it's the keyboardist Peter Winsness uh, said to me that he thought perhaps Jimmy was getting, getting just tired of what he was doing there. But they then had like this one month gig at a hotel playing every night in Mexico City. And one night Jimmy came in and he was really, you know, drugged out and drunk and he fell off the drum stool. And this band was pretty clean cut. Like they were, you know, maybe they'd have a beer after a show or something. And so the manager uh, was very upset and fired him on the spot. And, and then at that point, I asked the Spotniks, well, where did he go next? And they're like, well, we thought maybe Brazil because he liked that type of, he liked bossa nova music and he liked Brazilian girls and stuff. So again, I didn't realize he had stayed in Mexico. It took me quite a while uh, again, to discover where he was. Before this book was written, The Beetle Who Vanished, there wasn't really anything online about him other than the famous sentence, you know, in all the Beatle histories, like that he took over for Ringo for two weeks during the first world tour when Ringo had tonsillitis. And that was, that's where I started from. So it took six full years to flesh this all out and find out each time where did he go after because he walked out the door on Spotniks and no one knew where he was and yet he gets another big break as the president of RCA Victor Mexico takes a shine to him signs him as his A&R man lets him put a band together he marries a Mexican dancer and performance artist sort of his own Yoko and then <laughs> and then a couple of years later he hits the road again and yeah. goes back to London without telling anybody to start yep. a home remodeling business. I know. It's just uh, an interest. He's an interesting character. We're going to get to the, the verb tense you just used. But before we get to the present uh. day, <laughs> 1984, he agrees to appear at a Beatles convention in Amsterdam commemorating the 20th anniversary of his appearance there with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. It does not seem he really enjoyed himself all that much, at least not during the press conferences. Yeah, I don't think during the press conferences, but it seemed to me that when he was meeting fans, because I've seen photos of him uh, signing autographs, he's smiling. Uh, when I see him, th there was a, a Beatles cover band, as there are at most of these Beatle festivals. Uh, they asked him to sit in, and, he, and that's like the last public appearance of him playing drums that I was able to find. He seemed to really enjoy that. He was like back in his, you know, like back at home plate where he should be. You know, he felt really good playing the drums with that band. But, um, you know, I think that some of the questions bothered him that he was asked at the festival. And um, he mentioned that he, he was going to write this book about his experience and not just the Beatles, but his whole career. But Thankfully for me, he left that work to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what did it take to research this book? Well, when you say what did it take, 
I mean, it took six years. It took um, going from one musician to another. I mean, literally, I was able to start by finding information about the shub dubs. And then I was able to talk to the shub dubs on the phone and start to interview them. And then the, the next band. And, you know, I was able to talk to, of course, George Martin with the Beatles, Pete Best, actually, I talked to at that time because I asked him, were you asked to substitute for Ringo when Ringo got ill? I talked to Tony Bramwell and Neil Aspinall and a lot of the Beatle inner circle, as well as then documenting. Whenever I could, I tried to find either documents or recordings or, uh, as I mentioned earlier, lost video footage of him anywhere and, and everywhere. Because you can learn a lot. You know, I, we were talking about Paul asking how he was doing on tour. And there's a clip of them walking from a, a press questioning into another studio to actually play some songs. And you actually see Paul talking to him side by side. And then you see Paul pat him on the back. And oh, and then also Tony Sheridan, who the Beatles had played with in Hamburg, um, he had played with Jimmy Nickel in the first generation of British rock and knew Jimmy quite well. And so it just talk about the stars aligning when they were flying to Hong Kong on this tour. The Beatles and Jimmy Nickel were in first class. They discovered Tony was on the plane and brought him up front. And then I contacted Tony Sheridan and he explained to me exactly what went on and how the Beatles started to bond more with Jimmy once they found this connection between Jimmy and Tony Sheridan, who had really been a mentor to the Beatles in, in Hamburg and had let them record uh, with him on an album. So all these little pieces fell together and I would often say, well, do you know where he went next or where do you think he went next? Or who's this woman that uh, I'm hearing that he may have married some woman in Mexico and no one would know. And so I started in that case, I, when I had nothing on Mexico, I started um, going to all Mexican rock and roll websites and then I would have to copy and paste the whole, you know, long website and put it into Google and see what it said. And finally, one of them said, Jimmy played in this little club when he first got here and he had been with the Spotniks and he met a woman named Julia, just Julia, no last name. And I'm like, aha, this is a lead. So then I contacted this fellow who's a Mexican historian and he says, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Julia. You want her phone number? And here's her last name. And I was like, oh, this is like a miracle. But then here's a great Madison story. You know, everyone outside of Madison knows someone who either lives in Madison or has been to the UW or something. So I called Julia because I wanted to start learning about his Mexican life and career. And Julia was very hesitant and would say, well, I'll think about it and hang up. And I would email her, but she really didn't. And I translated into Spanish, but she'd only just write back, you know, I'm thinking about it. So I kept after her for a year. 
And finally, I call her and I said, you know, this is really important musical history. And, you know, Jimmy never got his due. And she goes, well, I don't know if I should talk about him. She goes, where do you live? I said, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. She goes, oh, oh, my sister-in-law lives in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Which I think all of us have heard that sort of story before. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, that's really interesting. You know, what does she do? Yada, yada. So then she goes, all right, I'll talk to you. <laughs> so, so I was okay because I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and her sister-in-law is there, so she was familiar with it. And so we had a very nice conversation, and we have been in touch many times since. And, and in fact, her, her second husband, who she's still with, has been very helpful. He sent me all kinds of rare photos from her collection and such, so... But all those things take time and you have to be patient because sometimes people, you get the sense they want to tell you, but they're not sure for whatever reason. So you have to, um, you know, keep trying to earn their trust. That's a lot of time, a lot of work on that may or may not come together. I mean, right. I was going to quit if, if I didn't get all the answers that I wanted. I was going to just say, OK, I can't finish the book, so I won't. Why didn't they call Pete Best? Because uh, John Lennon actually was asked that question. And he said, well, because we didn't want to bring up the fact that he might think he's coming back into the band after we fired him. And it was a an emotional thing when we did fire him and it got half the fans mad at us. And we just didn't want to go through that again. I think another factor is that at some point in the mid 60s, Pete Best, I believe, sued the Beatles for some sort of compensation. And there were a lot of complications there because Neil Aspinall had had an affair with Pete Best's mom and had produced a baby who became uh, Pete Best's half brother and uh, so there was a lot of things going on there. It, was a, it could have been a real housewives drama, I think. 1994 was the 30th anniversary of the Copenhagen shows. The organizers want to invite Jimmy. They go talk to his son, who tells them that Jimmy Nickel is dead, which right. everyone believes because they haven't seen him, but it's not true. Right. Why did his son lie like that? Uh, because Jimmy told him to. And I believe that once the lie was exposed, if you will, that that then embarrassed Jimmy's son, Howie, because he had been asked to, to lie about, oh, my dad doesn't want to do this. He's dead. So that's a pretty embarrassing thing. And so um, I believe that that may have been the factor that started to cause a rift between father and son there, Jimmy and Howie. I mean, he could have just said, no, he doesn't want to do it. Right. So after all, after years and years of research, you, you finish the research and you yeah. tried to uncover about his past and you tried yes. to uncover his present. You looked for him on two continents. How, <laughs> how close did you come to finding him? That's a good question. Well, I looked for him all over Australia because um, there were some rumors that he really enjoyed Australia and, and wanted to go back there. But I, I met up with a lot of 
of people like myself in Australia who are Beatle historians, Beatle authors, etc. And they said, no, he, we would know if he's here and we would take you to him because we, we've heard those rumors too, but he's not shown up in the, the major cities that he had gone to and was familiar with. But I took the opportunity then to retrace his steps in those cities and to take pictures and things for the book. And also as a writer, you want to familiarize yourself with the environment in which certain stories took place. So that was important. I went to Mexico too and didn't see any hide nor hair of him, but you know, Mexico city is a huge place and I'm not that good at Spanish, but anyway, I also hired, uh, I'll get to London in a minute, but I hired a um, person who had written a book about like how to disappear and get off the grid if you need to. And I thought, this is the guy that I should ask to find Jimmy Nichols. So I hired him to look all through Mexico and to use all, all of his technic, technical information, et cetera, technology to find him. And he came up empty handed. When I went to London, I thought based upon talking to some of the musicians that were still there, still active, although much older, uh, and said, is Jimmy still living in this apartment in the north end of London? And they said, yeah, we believe so. He's, he hasn't made any contact with any of us, but that's what we've all heard. Camden, that's the area. So I made a pilgrimage to Camden after also going to Abbey Road Studios, DECA, what used to be Pie Studios, all these uh, places. Again, oh, the Two Eyes and Coffee Club and the Flamingo. Again, just wanting to get a feel of what, what it was like, what these places were like. Then the last thing I did was I went to Camden. I went and knocked on the door and a young man in his late 20s came to the door holding a baby. And I said, hey, um, does Jimmy Nickel live here? And he goes, no, I don't know who that is. And I said, when did you, when did you move in here? And he said, oh, about five months ago. So it looks like I missed him by five months. Uh, I later then hired a detective while I was in London who said he owned a 100-year, Jimmy Nickel owns, plural, a 100-year lease on that apartment. And it looks like he hired a building manager and that person rented it out and he left. And we now see that his pension, whatever they call social security over in England, that his pension is leaving the country uh, once a month, but we it doesn't tell us what country it's going to. So then I ran into Jimmy's uh, cousin in Edinburgh. We went on a trip to Edinburgh and somehow he contacted me like three days before we were going to Edinburgh. And we met at a pub and he showed me all these interesting postcards. And it was obvious that of all the people Jimmy kept up, kept up with uh, into the 2000s, it was his first cousin there. And so I said, well, where is he now? He goes, he just, he met a gal. And then I talked to them on the phone. He was in Camden. And then next thing you know, the phone's disconnected. The email doesn't work everything's gone. I haven't heard from him, no postcards anymore. And he vanished. <laughs> uh, 
which by the way, I have to give credit to my wife. I, I was, I would tell her these stories of what I was doing and what Jimmy Nichols doing. And I said, what should I call this? She goes, well, obviously the Beatle who vanished. So she came up with a great title. And finally, if you had found him, what did you want to ask him? Well, I probably would have asked him, uh, many questions, but, you know, one of the things I would have wanted to delve into is this concept that he felt Brian Epstein had blacklisted him. And I would like to know some of the um, examples that he could give me to demonstrate that. And, and I might've debated him on that issue because he might've said, well, I was playing these big gigs and then I, I ended up playing in these little, little pubs and I might've said, you know, well, what about the fact that you know, media falls off. And so people aren't that interested anymore. But I also, um, I would have asked him more about Mexico because I was intrigued about it. Apparently he, he was on the radio. He had a show. He taught uh, music theory at like a technical college and he owned and ran a button factory, which for the longest time, I thought that meant shirt buttons, but they were the political buttons of the 60s, the peace sign and all that. And without approaching the Beatles, he produced you know, <laughs> Yellow Submarine and other, other uh, buttons about the Beatles that he took advantage of and put those on there as well. But I, I don't know, I think, you know, I would probably would have asked him questions from each of those various time periods, but those are some that come to mind. And there's such a cinematic sweep to the saga. What is the status of the film project? So uh, I optioned the film to Alex Orbison, Roy's son, and Ashley Hamilton, George Hamilton's son. And then we made a deal with a British company called Ecos Films, who've made some wonderful British dramas uh, in England. They're in London. And I am working with the screenwriter as a script consultant. So he may have questions about something in the book that's not specifically covered in depth, but is interesting to him for purposes of the script. Uh, I'm a co-executive producer on the project, and it's you know currently in development moving forward. Excellent. Very good to hear. Uh, do keep us informed about that. I know you've got to run. That is all the time we have with Jim Birkenstadt. Again, the book is The Beetle Who Vanished from the Good People at Rock and Roll Detective Publishing. Great. Thanks very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Stu. And uh, maybe next spring we'll talk again about Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, my next book. Absolutely. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, our friend George Hesselberg to talk about his new book, Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio.